0: Hello and welcome to Subject to Change with me, Russell Hogg. My guest today is Peter Pomerantsev. Peter is a journalist and TV producer and he's also visiting senior fellow at the Institute of Global Affairs at the London School of Economics. He's also the author of the two books we're going to talk about today. The first is Nothing is True and Everything is Possible which is the story of Peter's time working in Russian TV for about a decade from 2006. And the second is called, This Is Not Propaganda, which is about how people are manipulated in the online world. So welcome, Peter, to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Actually, I introduced you as a TV producer and journalist, but is that something you're still doing now?
1: Oh, it's a funny one. I'm I'm more, uh, I'm definitely an author. Let, let, let's let start with that. I'm definitely an author because I'm working on my third book now. So I think book one was, you know, everybody's got one book with them. Mm. Um. The second one was me checking that the first one wasn't a fluke. And now if I do the third one, I can really say that I'm definitely an author. So so that's a thing. I now do more kind of research into propaganda and what we do about it at the LSC and also at Johns Hopkins University, where I teach a little bit as well. But a lot of the stuff that we're looking at, we're working with media. So we'll look at, you know, how you know the Russian or populist propaganda is working and then we'll work with media to think about how do you produce content that does something about that. Mm. Um, so it's a lot more audience analysis than I'm used to, a lot more sociology, but it's still then looping into the creative process. And the other thing that I do is, 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 even though I don't do TV so much, because that's very time consuming, I still do a lot of radio documentaries. So I, I do a lot of podcasts for the BBC. Oh, really? Um, so I do a lot of that as well. So I'm still, look, I'm still drifting around media, but maybe slightly different position you know spending much less i don't spend my life in an edit suite which was, was my life for many years but i'm still thinking about media and I'm still, you know i suppose i'm so i don't mind i'm but no i think tv producer probably not anymore author yes and kind of you know media whatever a bit of everything on media
0: <laughs> are you able to say what your third book's about yet or do you want to keep that quiet
1: no, no, no. I mean, uh, it's not a secret. I mean, it's, um, uh, I don't want to get into the complete details, but it's, it's a Second World War book. I, I feel that we don't have enough Second World War books. That it's, <laughs> yes. it's, it's a barren, yes. it's a barren <laughs> field, a barren field. And, um, and so I just, I've just got to, I've got to plow that lonely furrow. And is it going to be based in sort of the Soviet Union or the Ukraine? Is that
0: your area of specialty or, or, or what is it?
1: I mean, I know you don't want to say too much, but... No, 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 it's about, it's about propaganda in the Second World War and about kind of like, it's about sort of like, what, what do you do about Nazi propaganda? Um, and it's not, you know, I'm not a historian, so I'll be, I think I'll probably be, influ- like, I'm reading a lot at the moment, but I think I'll probably be, A, looking at the parallels between Nazi propaganda and now, but also I'll interview a lot of historians. I'll probably approach it a little bit like a TV producer in that sense. Yeah. And a documentary maker. I'm certainly not going to become an overnight... Uh, sir richard evans but but so i might go and interview sir richard evans sure um but but my my, 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 my question is how did Nazi propaganda work and what can we learn about its weaknesses and what can that tell us about the weaknesses of propaganda today that's kind of the quest that i'm on my
0: father always said that he thought british propaganda was pretty effective so are you going to look at uh, propaganda which
1: came out from britain and from well the western powers exactly yes that's that's part of that's a big part of what i'm looking at exactly um
0: yeah okay so shall we shall we talk about your books a bit and, and maybe start with your first book which was about your time working in russian tv and and i thought maybe maybe before we did that is is it maybe worth just giving people a bit of a bit of a history lesson about the fall of the Soviet Union, because your time is sort of after the fall of the Soviet Union, after the coming down of the Iron Curtain. And I suppose people who didn't live then, it's scarcely credible that that system even existed. And that—and I lived for, I don't know about the best part of my life, or, you know, 20 or 30 years of my life, where it was just a given that that was the system, and now it's gone, I can scarcely believe that it was ever there in the first place even though i was there at the time so is it worth just spending a little bit of time on you know the the fall of the soviet union and the emergence of russia as a as a country
1: yeah i mean actually in my second book i spent you know which is a partly a family history yes i spend a lot of time um looking at the soviet system and the propaganda model and my parents times there i mean they left when I was nine months old in nineteen seventy seven and I grew up in Britain. So um, it's, it's it's so 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 it's um and it's shocking, I mean sort of my father, for example, was a, a poet and a dissident, and he was arrested and threatened with seven years imprisonment for the heinous crime of handing out copies of Vladimir Nabokov's invitation to a beheading i mean <laughs> it's like seven years yeah it's very hard to get yeah and, and solzhenitsyn's gulag archipelago but i mean these are modern classics these are modern classics which are now on the russian curriculum i mean for what it's worth um and it's very hard to imagine a world where you would be punished for something like that you'd be interrogated for it you would be you know you would you would you would tremble as you handled these books and you gave them to people and giving them to people put them in terrible danger. I mean, it is all nuts. It's nuts. And it's nuts that now people will tell you things that, oh, well, there were some good things about it. Well, sure, there were. But <laughs> what are <you> talking about? <laughs> it was a nightmare. It was a horrible, horrible dictatorship nightmare that nobody believed in, apart from a couple of Westerners, I think, by the 1970s. It was a deeply, deeply cynical system, but which had, was a system and therefore, you know, had its, own, had its own kind of hierarchy and its own ways of success. success. And, and in which propaganda played a very strange role by that time, in the sense that it was all pervasive, strict censorship. Foreign media was, was, was largely banned, and, and sort of like the radio, which was the main form of communication, was sort of censored with jamming. Again, it's hard to imagine that. I mean, Russia today is nothing like that. I mean, it is—it's a world with a, a very restricted media system, but you can get anything you want. I mean, it's all there. It's all online. Right. So, so you know, you can access the BBC or Radio for Europe, you know, with no trouble. So yes, it is hard to 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 imagine this world where these very basic freedoms were stifled, and people ran. Huge levels of danger for the most basic dignity, and it's and it's funny. It's, 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 we have all these books about Nazi Germany, and I'm writing another one now. <laughs> we have very few about the Soviet Union. It hasn't, you know, there's very few, very little of it has been kind of popularized, and maybe that's because it was very recent. By the way, I'm very interesting to see how Ben McIntyre has started writing about the you know, the Cold War now. Yes. Which is, I think, as we get a bit further away, I think we'll actually get more books about it. I think we're starting to see more. It was just a bit too close. The people who were in it, they wanted to forget about it. And it was just a little bit too recent to be dramatic um, because it was just still news rather than history. And I think now something's changing. And I think we're going to see a lot of revisiting of that. But what we need is, like, children's books. I mean, so my kids are growing up and there's all these books about the awfulness of Nazi Germany that they can read. Mm. And there's nothing about what it was like in the Soviet Union. I think there's one book that I found. There's nothing. I mean, there's so few films. There's Enemy at the Gates. It's like the only sort of like Hollywood film about the Russian version of the Second World War. So I don't know. I think that'll change. I think as it becomes history, it'll start becoming more more, more, more part of stories. And, and, and yeah. but, but, but at the moment, you're right. There's a lot of like, it's, it's neither there nor it's, yeah, it's, it's, not well, it's not well covered.
0: I saw Ben McIntyre talk about his book. I think it was Gordievsky. i maybe forgotten, got the name wrong, but the guy who had that sort of incredible escape yep. from Russia through Finland, I think. And it was just a, just an extraordinary story.
1: One of the most enjoyable hours I spent in my life, I think, uh, listening to him talk about that. Exactly. And, and he's a man with a terrific sense of, of, the, of the pulse of the market, so to speak. And Plus, it's not only that, you know, I don't know if you've noticed, there was this very successful podcast about... A uh, very successful podcast about a, a kind of CIA plot to plant a song, the Scorpion song, uh, Winds of Change. I think it was called Winds of Change in the Soviet Union and its role in bringing down the Soviet Union. But again, the, the, the Cold War was the setting. Yeah. I don't know. I think, I mean, that's still coming in from a very, you know, both McIntyre and this podcast are coming in from a very Western perspective. Yeah. They're talking about like the Cold War. But again, it's that whole complex and that whole bit of history which I think is going to get more focused. It's a very successful BBC podcast series about escape from Berlin, people escaping in the tunnels underneath, underneath the wall. I, there's so many stories to come out. There's so many stories to be told. It's kind of silly that I'm doing a Second World War book. I think after that, I'll do a Soviet book. <laughs> well, maybe, yes. But but I think, I, I, but I think it's exciting. I, think I, I, I hope it changes. And I hope, you know, we need a lot more novels about about the Soviet Union and a lot more films and a lot more just trying to make sense of this Atlantis. I mean, and not only from the sort of like, just as, as it was, not just from the kind of, not even as critique, because the critique for me is so obvious the moment you start telling the stories. Right. So Chernobyl, that was another great example. I was going to say, the HBO series Chernobyl, like people were fascinated. What was this world? What were the rules? What were the people like? And that was proof that you could do a series about this place without a Western character in it. That was a very big success for Chernobyl that you could do a whole series that was just about Russians or Soviets. So I think there's so many stories like that. There's so many amazing stories to unearth and tell. I don't know why I'm doing a Nazi, because I'm telling, so I'm saying this, I'm like, <laughs> my God. There's so much to about the Soviet space program. I mean, it's fascinating. Gagarin, what a character. First man to go out in space, completely then destroyed Destroyed by the system, eaten up by the system. He was made into this kind of celebrity um, with these kind of KGB handlers, and he became a terrible alcoholic and kind of destroyed himself. Um, um, in this kind of, he was kind of like the Elvis Presley of the Soviet Union, but but with this huge political pressure on him all the time. Um, and then there were these tragic cosmonauts who'd be sent up, and then there was a very famous story which was that someone went round and round and then collapsed. To Earth. They couldn't save them. I mean, there's so many stories, so many stories, and and you're right, it's not told and and it is a whole civilization for better or worse that that needs to be that needs to be narrativized. Mm. So anyway, I've got a lot of work to do after this book.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, no it seems like books 4, 5 and 6 are writing themselves uh, pretty much as we talk. So what I wondered was as you say the system in the Soviet Union was absolutely nuts and then overnight it changes. And I suppose reading your your first book about your time in Russia, working in Russian TV. It's like there was this strange mix of sort of naivety, sort of massive, massive energy, and then, at the, and then on the other hand, this sort of deep, deep cynicism. It was a really
1: peculiar mix, I thought, in your book.
0: Does that sort of ring bells?
1: So my book does the Putin years. I do the 2000s, so the 90s were different. I think the 90s were, were like that. The 2000s were that, i mean naivety it's interesting where do you see the naivety i see a deep 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 cynicism uh where where do you see the naivety
0: well i suppose where i saw it do you remember that gangster who sort of reinvents himself as a movie star i thought there was a sort of mixture of just massive energy and massive
1: naivety almost yeah just i can do anything uh so so there was that way it's it's a bit different to the american one but there was the sense that anything is possible because society's in flux the old system has collapsed for a lot of people, that meant just depression and, 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 and suicide. But whether official suicide or just, you know, a generation Russia drank itself to death in the 90s, the, the, the death figures are horrific. Sort of, you know, the age of mortality for men, which is sort of alcohol-driven. It's a sort of slow national suicide for people who've lost all meaning in life. But, but, but for those who thrived or the many who survived, um, especially younger people, it was just an incredible process of reinvention, which is still kind of going on. But I think especially in the nineties and two thousands, and then especially what what is added in the two thousands to that flux is money. And suddenly the money pours in. And suddenly Russia goes to being a middle class country by so OECD standards. Moscow just starts I don't think suddenly has the most amount of billionaires per head in Europe and I think among the top cities in the world for, for billionaires, also a huge amount of millionaires. Um, the money just floods in. Um, Where is that money
0: being made then? Because it can't oil. all be being stolen from the state. It's purely just oil revenues, right?
1: It wasn't purely, but oil drove it, and oil then creates everything else. So yeah, it's the oil boom. I mean, it's like it happened in Venezuela at the same time, plus the globalization boom. You know, so so money's going, you know, huge investments. Uh, no, it's not just oil, but oil was at the se- oil and gas were at the core of it, and that made everything else possible. So that means, you know. Because the oil and gas was so big that meant the banks which were connected to the oil could underwrite media companies advertising sprang up in order to service the oil. i mean it created a whole economy but it wasn't just that no russians are obviously very talented and and, and good at many things but 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 it was oil gas and yeah it was it was, it was you know it was, it was extraction industries were completely at the core of the economy and sort of like i think prices per barrel went from, what, 20 per barrel up to 100, I think over 100 at one point. And that was, that was the engine, without a doubt. It was the, the oil prices. And um, so, yeah, and so, so, so money was added to this mix. So you had colossal, this colossal energy and cynicism, but also reinvention, which, I mean, it's not unlike Weimar Berlin in the sense that, like, in the sense that life is a cabaret, that the old, the old norms have gone... There is a period of of reinvention and I wouldn't say hope, but certainly kind of a feverish imagination around everything.
0: Right. Nobody, nobody quite knows where the boundaries are anymore.
1: Yes, exactly. The boundaries of personality, the sexual boundaries, the boundaries of identity, the moral boundaries, the whole thing. Yes. Yes. That's very well put. The boundaries have been have been destroyed. And I ended up there when I was what? actually came there in 2001 when i was 23 i guess something like that hmm. so and i stayed till 2010 so i was 23 24 when i arrived
0: gosh i thought you went there at 2006 so i picked that up wrong from the book so
1: in 2006 i started working in russian telly so 2001 i came there and i worked first for a western think tank that was based there doing very boring things like customs enlargement or something and then i was like fuck this and i went to film school in moscow And at the same time as I was doing film school, I was working on sort of Western documentaries about Russia. So, and I did that till around 2006, 2004 or whatever, something like that. And then 2006 was when I decided, I got an offer to work inside Russian TV, making sort of entertainment shows. And as someone who just sort of finished film school, but had also knew that if I went back to Britain, I'd spend like another five years trying to be a director. Here I was being offered to be a director straight away do you speak russian because your
0: parents come from the soviet union yeah 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 so that that must be great i guess and again that's part of what i don't want to be i don't know how this will sound but it's part of the naivety because the russian sees somebody from the west and they think fantastic i bet he knows a ton
1: yes there was that there was that i wonder if that's changed now but 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 there was definitely that there was like you know western advertising western sort of tv industry you know financial companies there was definitely a a period when Russians were like soaking up everything they could learn. And and, and London especially had this aura. If you said you were from London. You know, L- London at the moment in, in Russia, I think it still is that like this actually, is a bit like sort of Moscow for Czech three sisters. Remember they're like, to Moscow, we must get to Moscow. So every, for some, for many complex reasons, London is associated with aspiration and success in the current Russian imagination. Also, therefore you have to kill it as well so it's both like you want to go there you want to have your football club there also you want to send your assassins there it's this kind of like i adore it and therefore i want to kill it sort of relationship it's very very weird but um but it does play a very strange role in the imagination and there's a particular if you came from the city of london if you're a banker if you come from the london tv industry and working tv um that was considered particularly cool
0: um, fairness London finance and media I mean that is it's it's not
1: yeah no 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 it's not it's not it's not without reason it's not crazy but but you know I was 23 I mean so 2006 <laughs> I wasn't 23 anymore 2006 I was 20 whatever I was still in my 20s but you know I was already 28 actually but um, but but still I was in my 20s and people thought like you know I'd made the apprentice
0: Yeah. yeah yeah yeah
1: you know it's just, like, it's just like you know yeah well you're not going to tell them different are you well no obviously you no know, they could see my cv they knew what i'd done but like but that was the kind of things like oh you must you must know how to invent a to write a new format it's just like no i've just been a dog's body in british tv but yes there was that and maybe there's still a little bit of that i don't, I don't know hmm. so what happened to your well did you, do you want to tell the story a little bit about your
0: I was going to say your gangster friend, but I don't know that he was ever your friend, but this kind of extraordinary guy who creates his own TV show.
1: Yeah, he's one of my favourite characters in the book. So actually, I worked as an assistant producer on a Channel 4 documentary about him when I was still at film school and went and sort of spent a lot of time with this guy. He was a fascinating guy and, and, and very symbolic, and he's in my book because he symbolises a turn of Russian history. And... Um, so he was, he'd been like a, a fairly, a, not, not a big gangster. Like he had a gang of like 12, 14 people who would, you know, get protect, he was a, had a random protection racket. And then like he's in, he's in Eastern Russia. So in, you know, on the Pacific coast. And so their big thing was essentially they were like Dick Turpin hijacking cars. So a bunch of cars would arrive from Japan or the, everybody there drives Japanese cars. So it would be a lorry load of cars from Japan coming in. And him and his gang would walk out into the middle of the highway and point guns at them and stop the vans and take the cars. I mean, they were high women. <laughs> they took cars. <laughs> and that was his thing. He spent, he, spent, he spent half his time in prison. Right. In and out. Um, and it, the way he told us, was like he spent a lot of time in prison watching movies about gangsters. And he thought they were bollocks. They're like, none of these people know what it's like being a gangster. They thought they were nonsense. And it's interesting why they thought he thought they were nonsense. He thought some of them were just like, had no idea about like, guns and how you use guns. Like, that's not how you hold a gun. And then like, a lot of times he was like, he had a problem because a lot of the shows like, the gangsters had a conscience. And it was like, you don't do this job if you have a conscience. Like, what all these films about gangsters wrestling with their demons, like, we don't have a conscience. I, mean, he, I don't think he used the word Soviet conscience, but he's like, I never feel bad about what I do, and nobody in this industry feels bad about what they do because then we wouldn't do it. I mean, he was just like, "What a ridiculous concept!" (laughs) Um, I don't think he used the word conscience, but he was like, "He he was like, like, why are they crying? Like, that's ridiculous." I mean, he was a complete sociopath. I mean, he was like a textbook sociopath. He did not understand empathy at all. I just didn't. It just. But he comes across as quite charming in your book. Is that? Yes. Well, he's he's menacing. He's menacing and charming. Right yeah yeah he, he's very suave yeah. but anyway but after after the Channel 4 documentary we stayed in touch um, as you do because he wanted to make it he heard I was working Russian TV uh, he was trying to make so he, So sorry I, sh- I should say the main thing so afterwards he came out of prison in 2000 at which point it was un, it was not you know the whole gangster thing was ending in Russia and, and he was like well I'm not going to become like a businessman or something I want to become a movie person And he started making TV shows about his own gangster years with his own guys as the gangsters. Uh, And he made this, like, you know, he himself made this TV series, like 12-parter, which was very badly made, but it had these moments of, it had these moments of kind of, like, honesty, which were quite thrilling as well, you know. And, And, you know, he'd done a very good job in teaching himself how to be a filmmaker just from, like, reading books about how you make films and watching videos about how you make films and i think he had a professional editor work with him it's like he hired a couple of people but it was him i mean yeah and um and, and he played himself and he got the whole town involved in the shooting of the film and the cops would be involved in the scenes about the cops i mean it's very very confusing everyone was the whole town was kind of playing it being a gangster to be in his films and he was like a town hero but he was very provincial um, and and but he made these films or these series. What, yeah. Did they get shown, or, or yeah, what was they the get story? shown on local telly. They got shown on local telly, uh, local cable telly in in the far east. Right. I mean, the way the way it was explained to, to us was that basically they came around and said, "Fucking show this, or else we'll can you <laughs> or there'll be and trouble." And so they're like, "Yeah, there'll be trouble." And so they showed it. But it did really well. I mean, you no, know, no. We asked. We did lots of sort of like interviews with local people. And they're like, "Oh, he's told it like it is. He's shown the unvarnished truth." You know, and he was a celebrity. He'd walk around and people would be like, wow, it's, uh, it's the gangster. And um, yeah, but he was trying to make it in Moscow when we met him. And mm-hmm. nobody took him seriously in Moscow. Because in Moscow, they have a real film industry and a real kind of like serious industry. And he'd, he'd try to get stuff ma- made and like everyone just laughed at him. So he never made it into the big time in the end? No, so he he, he started writing books, which were quite successful, like weird... First gangster books and then comedy books. Uh like political comedy books. It was all very weird. Um and and but he didn't I mean we didn't stay in touch uh, too much. Last I heard he was he was he'd gone back to his bad old bad old ways. I don't know to what extent he ever stopped his bad old ways, by the way. I don't mm-hmm. I mean his whole spiel was that he's now an artist. I don't know to what extent he completely quit what he'd been doing before. Um but he was, like, having to lie low, I heard. Um, I half expected you to say that he was the mayor of some
0: town in eastern Russia. Yeah, but...
1: I wouldn't be surprised, actually. I wouldn't be surprised. Why not? I mean, people transform themselves a lot in this, cult, in this cult. You know, as long as you prove your loyalty to the state, you can be a former gangster-turned-politician, no problem. But he was interesting because he was somebody who was also trying to reinvent himself in a New World. You know, the Russian 1990s were... Dominated by gangsters in the two thousands, it's they're dominated with film by films about gangsters, which is slightly different. It's a more self-reflective period, in mm. that sense.
0: I suppose the gangsters are inside the system now; they're not outside the system. And and you sort yeah. of told that terrifying story of uh, of Yana and her pharmaceuticals company, and what yes. happened to her. Do you want to sort of just explain to people there because it's you know it just beggars belief.
1: Yeah, it's actually very common in Russia. So, uh, Yana Yakovyeva was a, um, or is a, a businesswoman, you know, new Russian success story, built up a pharmaceuticals company, family of academic chemists. It's like a pharmaceutical company that sort of made its money off sort of like cleaning products for for factories. You know, it's the sort of stuff that's, the sort of stuff that makes money and that you never think about. (laughs) Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Industrial cleaners. And, And basically one morning she has this attack on her company saying oh, well, first it was taxes. Your taxes are wrong, your taxes are wrong, which is a classic way of bureaucrats saying, give us some money. They'll find something in your taxes. They'll come and say, give us a bribe. And then she didn't pay the bribe. And then they were like, no, come and, I mean, I, I'm just like, I'm talking very broad brushstroke here. And then they're like, no, 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 We don't just want a bribe. We want a piece of your company. Give us a percentage in the company. She was like, no, go away. Uh, so she'd been having this trouble for a while with them, but she thought she was safe because there's nothing dirty in any of her business. Usually they'll find something dodgy in your business and sort of like leech on that um so this is the sort of like you know this must have been like 2006 2007 that kind of period and and then one morning she comes in i think she was at the gym and these people turn up and arrest her and she's been put under arrest and she gets taken to the station and she, she suspects it's to do with this whole thing and it's just they want more money they want another bribe or something and she gets to the station and and, and they they give her the, the sort of like what she's accused of and she's accused of being a drugs serena. And she's like, what? What drugs? What are you talking about? And they're like, oh, that chemical that you've been making all this time? It's just been redefined as an illegal drug. And all these years you've been a drug stealer. You just didn't know it. I mean, the whole thing is just beggar's belief, you know. But basically what they've done is taken the sort of the chemical that she used in, her, in herself... And re, re, reassigned it as a, as, a, as a drug, as an illegal drug. So suddenly she was under a drugs wrap, which is fucking serious. Um, and she just, you know, she just descends into this nightmare where she's being told there are you know, there's trials saying you're a drug dealer. She's like, how am I a drug dealer? You've been dealing this stuff. And she's like, what, this, what do you mean? This is what I use in my business. And there's lawyers selling her different things. There's, so they send her a lawyer saying, look, do a deal. Like the state-provided lawyer, she's like, no way. And then she finds a lawyer who fights back, and um, and it's it's a long story, but basically a big campaign kind of built across the country to support her with protests. It wasn't just her; it was quite a lot of people who'd been involved in the chemicals business became known as the the case of the chemists who'd been re who'd been you know defined by the Ministry of I think, I think the, their version of the um the dpa the drugs dea the drugs informants agency was 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 trying to do this to a lot of people to get some money out of them and in the end i mean i tell the story in the book about what happened to her there's there's a happy ending but um
0: it sort of it, it sort of rang bells with me a little bit with uh, with the bill browder Sergei magnitsky case yeah it sort of felt yeah, like it wasn't yeah. a million miles away and there wasn't such a happy ending to that one right
1: yeah the browder one or the Hodakovsky one because the browder story wasn't that was only just starting to build when i was there but the Khodorkovsky one was, I mean, Hodakovsky was a very well-known one, I and mean, he was a huge oligarch, but, but, you know, she wasn't. But, but it was that idea that, you know, bureaucrats will use the law to extract companies from people.
0: I remember thinking it's just uh, Kafkaesque, I suppose, uh, but um, yeah, quite terrifying that someone can just take a look at your company and say, okay, I'll have that now. How am I going to take it off you? And, and nobody will stop them. You think, this is extraordinary. You know, the gangsters are actually sitting as judges. The gangsters are in the police force, and nobody seems to care, although I guess in your case it did have a happy ending, so I don't know.
1: Uh, Yeah, but for like, you know, you have to read the book to find out why, but not not, not for the most kind of like virtuous reasons. Um, But listen, you know, this is actually a return to an old one. I mean, if you think about the Soviet Union, where people were being arrested for reading books, the idea that the state itself is the biggest gangster in town is, is a very old one. What happened in the 1990s, you had a period where the state lost control and just gangsters were gangsters. Um, but, but then the state went back to being the gangster. I don't know if that's that, that hard a concept to get one's head around. I think it's a hard reality maybe to imagine, but the state is the gangster. Um, when you walk along a street in Russia, when you see a policeman, you're scared of the policeman. You know, it's, it's the state which is the threat I mean maybe it's that way for a black person in America or in Britain. You know, maybe that's the way of thinking about you know, when I was there I was like okay maybe this is how a coloured person in America sees a cop when I see a cop in Russia I'm like fuck what are they going to do I'm like what do I do do I get my bribe ready now what are they gonna try, how are they going to try to get some money out of me are they going to try to plant something on me that's like when you see a cop you feel insecure which anybody growing up in, in Russia will know as like classic sense, yeah. this non-stop sense of unease around authority, and maybe maybe that's a lesson for us. Maybe that's maybe that's what you know. Maybe that's what a coloured person feels like in in well, certainly in America, but maybe also in Britain sometimes. Certainly, when
0: I'm in America, which is not that often, they absolutely terrify me. The idea that you go up to an American policeman and say, "Can you direct me to such and such a place?" <laughs> I don't think I want to risk it. Um, I don't get the sense that they're that they see themselves as 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 on a mission to sort of please the the public
1: i don't I, I i don't feel intimidated by american policemen um but um uh but then i'm a nice english tourist i go hello and they're like oh you're from london so, so i don't i don't get any beef
0: and then there was another it was an interesting bit it was, again it's sort of i was just struck by there was such a lot of psychology in the book and this sort of tearing out of the old buildings from moscow mm. and it was like you know just just trying to forget their past and it all it sort of reminded me of beijing where they seem to have no no respect for their own history it's very strange to me
1: well i mean the, the, what i try to do in the book is talk about just one of one of my favorite characters in the book is, is 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 a guy who's trying to save buildings he's a Something's very familiar in Britain, I think, somebody who's really into built heritage. Sort of in Britain I guess he'd be working for English Heritage or something or, or 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 something like that. But um so so when I lived in Moscow there was this huge destruction of the old town centre. Partly out of financial reasons, you know. Partly because like, you know, they wanted to build they wanted to build office blocks and make money. But partly out of kind of weird self loathing. I mean, so in the book it's kind of a metaphor for this culture that's very on un- une- uh, huge unease in its own history so they kind of r- it's constantly ripping its own heritage up because it's so unhappy with itself um but then it being russia they end up just rebuilding the old buildings in this really crappy way so because i mean the, the technical the technicalities is because there's laws around it you can't actually rip up the old town center so what you have to do is Start rebuilding it, accidentally collapse it, and then go. Oh, we'll build a replica, but with a ten-story office block on the back of it, so that you keep the facade, Mm. and then there's like a ten-story office block (laughs) behind it. We
0: get the same thing in Britain to some extent, and it's slightly depressing. You you get this nice facade, but you know it's all held there with with steel girders, and it's just the facade. There's just an empty space behind it until they stick whatever it is they're going to stick behind it.
1: Yeah no no exactly so we know that but there it's kind of it was kind of a strategy uh and accidental fires going off you know all the time like oh we are because all the construction was connected to the mayor's office so the mayor's office would start you know like imagine like the mayor's office starts i don't know let's not use london starts doing some repairs on the lanes in york you know and and next thing you know um or the old town in edinburgh Next thing you know, the old town in Edinburgh burnt down through a mysterious <laughs> fire that was started by accident in the repairs. Oh. And we just have to, obviously we'll leave the facades, but we're going to build a, you know, we're going to use the Royal Mile to build a bunch of, of skyscrapers. I mean, it's hmm. not skyscrapers. The thing is ugly. They're not even skyscrapers. They're like, you know, these kind of things built on the back. Like, you know, they're not even architecturally thought through. So anyway, so he was, he was one of the people trying to stop this and trying to preserve the buildings and, and stuff like that. But, but but yeah, we kind of use it as a metaphor of a country that can't deal with its own past, that can't is unhappy with its own past, and it's kind of both destroying it and then kind of rebuilding a fake past, which was what was happening in the in the school curriculums, in the media, and general and Russia's treatment of its past. So there was something almost, you know, the urban development reflected these kind of deeper, I don't know, psychoses of 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 the nation. Then You know, um, Russia is very generous in its metaphors to a writer.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a very literary nation, to say the least. Yeah. Um, so the last story from the book I, I just wanted to talk about, which I guess was the biggest story and certainly the saddest story, for me at least, um, was The Rose of the World, where it kind of plays a bit into your second book because it seems like everybody can be manipulated provided you know how to do it Provided you know the buttons to push you can make people you can take over people's heads so do you want to explain to people a bit what the um what the rose of the world was about and i don't know what's happened to it now is it i mean i think you said it's still going which terrified me
1: well so so, so, so the story was actually so 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 the, the book just to be clear it's, it's it's my it's based around the films that i made when i or the programs that i made when i was in russia um, and, and it was a documentary that I started making about a supermodel who committed suicide in New York, a Russian supermodel. And then, and there was a lot of mystery about why she did it. And so my journey, trying to find out, started in America. But then a friend of hers, another model, committed suicide in Kiev. And it turned out both of them had been inside this quasi, I mean, I mean sect-like organization. I wouldn't call it, I don't think strictly it's a sect. It's these kind of life coach training sort of courses. Which send people a bit mad. So actually, the technology of these courses is developed in America in the 1960s, in California, hmm. uh, called Est trainings and then Lifespring trainings. And they're kind of they're very popular in Russia, where there's this kind of thirst for psychology and often cod psychology or pseudo psychology, um, because society is so unhappy and so unsettled and so in so much churn. Uh, there's a huge demand for that, and and so. I look I look at other sects, in Russia in the book, but but this story I focus on. I mean, it was it was the cult or the cult-like organisation, but also their story. You know, models were so, you know, they were seen as the pinnacle of success for a Russian girl. You know, Russian models are and Ukrainian models are incredibly you know, take up a huge amount of the global modelling scene. And these were classy models. They weren't like you know, they, I mean, they were all around a very dirty world. Now that so one of the things that Ruslan had been at was parties that epstein's island for example so they lived in a very dirty world but i mean they were they were very successful in terms of doing do or well, one at any rate which she was the nina Ricci girl for a while and and so they were i mean they, they they kind of they were quite successful but they were in a dirty world i suppose but but it wasn't that it was about you know yeah it was about it was about manipulation and it was about a society where 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 beneath the kind of role-playing and this energy was actually a very psychologically brittle society. So I kind of relate it to the fact that actually sort of like suicides were very high among young women generally or among young people generally in, in Russia in the former Soviet state. So it's actually it's actually I mean, I tell their story and because it take, takes you into the story of kind of, you know, the dark side of Russian glamour and, and all that and these and these horrible cults. But but really it's a story about about generation with incredibly high suicide rates because there's been this huge cultural break because there's been you know the old way of existing collapsed for better or worse the new one is in flux and and we know that there are kind of like suicide rates are always high in societies where that kind of moral and family ties have broken and so when you're going through those complicated ages in your young 20s or your late teens you don't have that kind of support system of family ties of social values that that carries you through those periods so it's actually about that i mean the 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 the, the cults is one that you could find in many countries but it's interesting that people turn to that because there's this moral void in the middle of society and so you know people were going to these life training courses a lot and going to cults a lot and going to pseudo psychologists a lot and even the psychologists that were very popular were very very strange in russia they were not not really into deep psychology and much more into kind of these quick fixes, um, but even the guy you send along to sort of see what's going on there,
0: he mm. seems to have his head completely scrambled in in less than a week. Mm. It seemed incredibly powerful the technique.
1: Yeah, well, yes, I mean, and there, are, um, I mean, I'll have to sort of like like I can't say whether it's a guy or a girl. We had sort of changed the name for the for the for the in piece of investigative reporting, um but um yes they're they're they had a a torrid time uh but then again if you look at the research into these trainings across the world that's quite that's not uncommon i mean a week is very brief but but there's it's again there there is like these this program of trainings is trailed with with court cases and scandals in all countries so it's you know I think what's, what's, imp- what's very important in Russia, they, 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 go, they go largely unpunished because the court system is so corrupt um, and there's, no, there's less accountability. So in America, they went bust. Right. And then France. Well, they keep on getting reborn. They, get, they keep on getting reborn under new names and in Britain as well. But in France, they were kind of like, in France, they were defined as a cult-like organization. So, it's a, so what I think the difference in Russia is because is, is it's such an unregulated space, they can thrive. And there's such a demand for alternatives. They can thrive. And there's also this just like, I mean, when I interviewed people from there, there was just this stunning lack of care about the fact that people who went there had nervous breakdowns or even committed suicide, which again, I think spoke just of a culture where, where nobody cares about the victims. And I thought that was very Russian. I think in another country, they would have been a lot more like, oh, how terrible it was not our fault. We tried to help them. Here it was like, yeah, well, they couldn't cop it you know, this is a hardcore training, it's transformational, you're meant to become a new person, they just weren't strong enough to transform, no. It was pretty brutal, but it was really, I mean, that story was, was for me about this generation of young people who are just, who are just kind of dancing above a, a moral void, and a, and, a, and a cultural void in the kind of slightly old-fashioned sense of a, of a culture that supports you and nurtures you. And they had nothing to turn to. In their times of trouble, they had nowhere to turn to. Everybody manipulated them. The men manipulated them. The modelling industry manipulated them. Their parents were just hopeless in this situation because their parents came from a different world and did not understand the new rules. You know, lots of people have a bad time in modelling, but they go back to mum and dad. And mum and dad can kind of help them. You know, you hear lots of horror stories in modelling. Mum and dad couldn't understand what planet their kids were on. They were just in a different stratosphere. There was nothing connecting them anymore. And all they could do was watch with huge sadness as their children just went on to a different universe. And so there was nothing, you know, there was nothing that you should turn to in that period of crisis. And, you know, the, the, you know, what they turn to is this thing that says it's going to help them become happier. And it's just the complete and utter last, <laughs> the most cynical thing ever that just rips out your soul and doesn't care what happens to you. Hmm. But it was that, I mean, that, that, that piece was a bent, I mean, that's why it's near the end of the book. It's about... It's about that post-Soviet moral wasteland. But that was your last. That was your last
0: show, I think, because uh, you went back to London.
1: Yeah, I never finished it. I never finished it. I, I got too. I got too far into the story, and and um. Well, I, I finished one bit of it, and then the next bit somebody else had to finish. I kind of fucked it. Up. I mean, I was. I mean, it was just a documentary. It wasn't a show. I mean, it was just a forty-minute doc. Um, but. Um, I had a sort of a... I was very distressed by the end (laughs) of it. It was a very, very... And that's like... I mean, that's a different story and one I keep on wanting to write about, but documentary makers... I mean, journalists generally, generally, but I think especially documentary makers, we don't get given any psychological training about how to deal with the traumas of others. And when you're working on a project like that or if you're working on something about terrorism or disasters or murders, you end up spending a lot of your time with the families of the victims and the people around them and you end up taking on a lot of their trauma because if there's something about the process of filming which makes you particularly intensely connected to them and um and i wonder maybe there's a bit of guilt because
0: you feel you're using them in some way
1: yeah oh completely there's that as well uh, there's guilt this, but they, you're helping them, you're using them. I mean whatever. It's, it's, it's always a mixed- up relationship in that sense. I think all journalism and filmmaking is actually. But, but there's something specific about trauma. I mean, a friend of mine remember, did a, a film about old Nazis. It's been like a year with old Nazis. And in the end, just couldn't make another film again. It's just you take on all this stuff. And, and here I spent a year with, with the families and the people around them. And just exploring their deaths over and over and um yeah um, you know it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't a pleasant experience
0: let's come on and talk about your other book, This is not Propaganda. Is it worth talking a bit about your own family history there because it seems like your your father comes out of the Soviet Union. Um, he's able to escape or to leave. and then he he kind of moves over into the BBC. Did I get that right?
1: Yep yeah, yeah so, so yep yeah. so in theme 1980 he got a job at the, at the World Service. So I grew up around the BBC and around the World Service. That was sort of my childhood.
0: And I guess I was quite interested because your book is about persuasion, it's about propaganda, it's about manipulation. and you kind of got the digital world which we're in now. And your father is kind of very much the analog world of radio and so on. Do you want to say a bit about that? Or is is that sort of a distinction that you recognize?
1: Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, look, now he's still working, by the way. So so now he's just like, you know, made the very... I mean, he still does radio, but it's now called podcast. And I think radio has made a bit of a comeback to, in these days. So, yes. So he's very happy. He's very happy. For a long time, he was on the edge of things. Like, you know, radio was the, the poor cousin to to cable news but suddenly he's just like aha these podcast things this is great and he makes culture shows so he, they're very textured they're very audio designed around sound and and that's very appreciated now so so he's still going he's in his early 70s and uh, he, he's not staff anymore he's he comes in and does his program like as a, as a kind of I essentially as, a, as a, he just does a show he doesn't have to do all the kind of editorial meetings anymore but um yeah, but I think what has changed though is is something else which is before you had a couple first you had censorship versus freedom of speech as a great context as a great contest and now you there's much less of that and there's still censorship around but it's now about you know regimes like Russia or even China try to win win the battle by overloading yes with more information so that's changed and and just that, what do we do in an era of information abundance? You know, that's what's changed. I mean, he was a, he was a, a Cold War broadcaster where, like, every little bit of the BBC that got through the censors in, in the Soviet Union was precious. You know, information had this... It was scarce. It was like water in a desert. And now it's the fucking firehose of falsehood that gets blasted at people. And that's changed a lot. You know, that's, that whole logic of, I suppose, counter-propaganda has changed a lot
0: it's astonishing this idea where you're not even expected to believe it it's not even expected to be credible it's just enough that there's so much of it and you're trying to sort through and work out what's right and what's wrong yes that it just becomes impossible right
1: yes that's much more the tactic that they that they uh, that they adopt is it worth talking a little bit about the russian
0: troll farm because i guess that's well known and yet is it because I assume they're all over the place, uh, you know, in the comments sections, on Facebook, on Twitter, everywhere you care to think about. And we kind of know about it, but equally, it's like people don't really know about it either.
1: I thought I knew all about it as well. And then in the book, I interviewed a brilliant undercover journalist who went and spent a lot of time there. And I didn't have turned out not. I mean, I didn't really know the mechanics. And it was fascinating finding out, you know, what it's, what life is like there. What's it like working on a troll farm? What do people talk about? Who works there? Um, and then also getting really into the weeds of the tactics. Um, so so that was very interesting. Then, yeah, we in general, we know there's a Russian troll farm, you know, posting comments saying that Trump is great. So we've heard about that, but it was much more subtle than that. And also finding out, you know, about the, the human relationships, about, the, you know, the hierarchies, the psychology of people working there. Did they feel bad about it? Did they feel fine about it? Um, all that I thought was great fun. And did they feel bad about it? So, so there was different categories. I mean, firstly, there's different levels. So there's like, you know, there's people right at the bottom who are leaving like posts on newspaper things, you know. And, and she, was, she was there when it was largely focused on domestic stuff, sort of to, to attack Independent media inside of Russia, when that was still, when there was still some and activists inside of Russia, so so it was very interesting. Sort of the people who left comments on on newspaper sites—they're at the bottom of the, the low of the low. A lot of them aren't very well educated, so they'd have to have like a grammar teacher come around and give them grammar lessons to sort of, like, get the grammar better. And then higher up was where she was working, where she created a whole character online who like was an astrologist. And like there was a team of them running this website, this astrologist, who would just be doing astrology and then occasionally dropping in stuff about, you know, my horror, you know, your horoscope says that the EU will collapse because of its decadence and Russia will flourish and stuff like that. So so it was interesting seeing the different levels and different gradations of work there. And um, um most people there were just they just treated it like a PR job. You come in, you do your work, you go away. You have to sort of cut yourself off and, and my the, Ludmila, the lady that I, that I interviewed, she was just always struck by this, just this sort of, you know, this sort of double thing. So a lot of the people were perfectly pro-Western and didn't like Putin very much, but it was a job, quite well paid. Um, actually very, well, I mean, well paid, I mean, better paid than a journalism job. And if you're a, and most of the people there were students, so, you know, the high incentives. And yeah, they were just completely cynical. You know, you come in, you do your job, you go away. Uh, there was a few, she said, who actually enjoyed it, like, like, like who enjoyed being nasty, but that was quite rare. Um, so again, very interesting. And very interesting how how the instructions are given out, how much creativity you're given, and how much do you have to follow direct instructions. What happens in an emergency when there's a, you know, when there's a news emergency, and how, how the system reacts to that. So so you know, again, I, I spent a lot of time interviewing her, and it was fantastic getting this sort of micro texture of of the place. And
0: what's happened to her now?
1: She's in St. Petersburg. I mean, she's she's very brave. She was always like an activist journalist. Um, so, so, I mean, this was a few years ago now. So, so I I, I, think, I think it's been tough. But, you know, there is a small kind of a small NGO activist and independent media sector. So that's kind of where she dwells.
0: But again, it's almost the fact that she's still going. It kind of speaks to the cynicism of the thing because it doesn't actually matter that people know about it. That's not the point.
1: Well, that was her big shock. So she thought she'd do the seven cover reportage, show that this place existed, and there would be dismay in Russia. Like, you know, it was valuable information to journalists, but, like, all her, all her peers were like, yeah, who cares? You know, it's just a troll farm. It'd been normalised. And that was that was part of her shock. She was like, hold on, I didn't... You know, this can't be normalised. This cannot be normal. And that's, that's a very dangerous thing. I think that's actually, you know, a lot of things do get normalised. Uh, we've we come to accept a lot of a lot of a lot of kind of distortion and evil in our media system, and and come to think it's normal. That might be the biggest tragedy of all. And who
0: are its targets now? Or is it does it? Well, who controls it? Is it is it is it controlled by the Kremlin? Is it simply friendly to the Kremlin? And then it might be told this is something we want you to do, but otherwise just do whatever you think. What what's the command and control structure?
1: Well, so listen. From what we know, there's more of these. There, yeah? um, so, so so we we know about one that's been very well covered now, because there's whistleblowers from it, there's journalists who penetrated it. But as far, I mean, we suspect there's far there's far more, and actually, I think it's quite public. I mean, not even suspect. We know there's far more, and it's it's a, it's a cottage industry, and it's almost like, you know, PR companies with you get contracts from the Kremlin, and. Do what the Kremlin tells them, but it's outsourced. So, so just they'd probably say they're kind of black PR companies. You know, black PR is a, is a, is a term for sort of companies that do kind of covert PR. Um, so they'll just say we're a PR company, right? We're just doing PR. So
0: it'll be like that, A bit like the use of mercenaries. They they outsource stuff. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, actually, the guy who who controls this one also is the one that's used for for mercenaries. But it's closer I mean masteries are a business. well, this is a business that was kind of like curated and created for this purpose to give a bit of distance between the Kremlin and, and these operations um, but I mean it was you know, it's, 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 they're not they weren't created as businesses to start off with I think. I think they were created as service providers for a very for a very distinct for a very distinct client Yes
0: and your book talks quite a lot about how online persuasion tactics have been used to support what you might call the good guys if you think that the protesters against some of the more oppressive regimes in the world i mean if you categorize Mm -hmm. them as the good guys so this whole online war it's not just the troll farms or maybe it is I, i don't know if you would say that's the same tactics i mean how do you distinguish between good propaganda and bad propaganda i guess is what i'm inching
1: towards um so so there's absolutely nothing wrong with was trying to persuade people that your cause is right i mean that's you no know, that's all activism is that you know martin luther king is doing that so look there's, there's i mean there you get into the question of what is propaganda and, and now because i teach the courses about this now <laughs> it's it really is how you define it but there's two ways of looking at it one is about is the cause right you know and if the cause is right the means or must that matter you know so so that's that's one way of thinking about it propaganda is just mass persuasion there's no morality or immorality to it it's it's whether the cause is moral or immoral so that's one way of looking at it. And that's, you know, there's a whole branch of propaganda studies that looks at it that way. Um, other ones looking at more at process. So it's about transparency. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with you trying to persuade someone. The problem is if you're trying, if you're pretending you're somebody else and doing that. But then you get into complicated stuff. I and mean, that's that's kind of like, you know, the, the, that's that's that seems a good guiding light. But then you get into complicated stuff like. What about if you're doing counter-jihadi stuff, yeah? Mm. You know, the whole controversy in Britain about some of the British states' campaigns, which I think were quite benevolent campaigns, to win over Muslim youth, they were done through proxies. Because if the British government says, hi there, come and be nice, you know, it (laughs) won't work either. So the transparency one, a lot of people who work in kind of comms and social marketing will say, look, yeah, that sounds great, but the reality is... If you're, if you're too, you know, open, then you'll never be able to communicate. So you've got to do it through proxies. And then you're like, well, how is that different to a troll farm? So it goes, a lot of these things are insult, insult, uh, very hard to solve. But I, 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 do think, I do think intent matters, by the way. I do think actually the morality of what you're doing matters. So if you're doing it to get somebody murdered, like this troll farm, well, this troll farm party covering up a murder, that's one thing. If you're doing it to promote um, voting turnout, that's a different cause. But there are questions about process as well, um, which I think, you know, should usually be transparent whenever it can. When you get into counterterrorism and stuff like that, I want, you know, maybe there's, there's things to think about there. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm not an expert on counterterrorism, on sort of CV counting extremism operations. But it is, it is complex, and, and it is mixed up, and propaganda and counter propaganda are distant cousins. Um, and, and, and also, there's a lot of places that wouldn't say that propaganda is a bad word. You know, propaganda is the, the bad term that we use for mass communication. So when we don't like it, it's propaganda. When it's something else, it's, you know, yeah. social marketing or something. And they're, they're very gray areas. They're very gray areas. And in the book, I interviewed the guy who created this company, SCL, which became Cambridge Analytica, of sort of, right. which became kind of associated with the sort of very dirty political campaigns. And he was like, as far as he was concerned, he discovered a methodology for influence. How do you influence people? How do you get behavioral change? And that can be used for getting people to stop smoking or getting them to wear a condom through to you know, covertly influencing an election. He said, I've created a weapon. You can use the weapon for good. You can use it for bad. He was like, I think the sector should be regulated, by the way. Like, we will follow. If there's regulations around election, like, don't do this, then we won't do it. That was his kind of thing. Um, so change the regulations and we'll do something else, you know. We have an influence weapon. It's up to you how you use it. That was kind of his philosophy. There's a little bit of truth in that. I mean, certainly when it comes to something like health, we've got COVID at the moment.
0: Yeah,
1: we expect We expect the government to be doing... A million and one communications campaign nudging working out who influences you know we, exp- we we actually demand that the government do behavioral change campaigns for us to um some of which are very transparent some of which are done through media that we might not necessarily realize is a campaign but we kind of expect that because it's for the nation's health so it is a gray area and it's not easy and somebody anyone who says anyone who says is uh it's an easy thing is 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 simplifying what is actually a very morally complex arena um but the other big thing to think about is the overlap between art and propaganda um because a lot of you know propaganda is very similar to art i mean it's also sort of probing your identity probing your the language that you use to define the world around you just the way art does and a lot of the propagandists are historically the failed artists uh or not or sort of grade b artists and um a lot of artists get pulled into doing propaganda so that's the other kind of relationship i mean sort of essentially my book is about the tension between art and propaganda i mean that's actually the underlying theme of the book do you think there's something
0: dead about propaganda that's not dead about art
1: yeah i mean propaganda is taking those things and usually putting them to uh taking those things taking those insights about people climbing into that space between you your emotions and language and your identity and then and then pulling that to somebody else's needs Hmm. that's one of the ways that by the way propaganda theorists define propaganda it's not just influence it's influence for the needs of the people who do it which aren't your needs so when we are talking about public health it's different they are trying to actually do you good yeah. So that's one of the, that's another way of defining it. You know, it's, it's, it's mass influence, which is to the benefit of the people who are doing it, which is not the same as the benefit of the people who are receiving it. Right. Yeah. And that's the difference between education and propaganda. Um, and art, I think is the opposite. Art is 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 exploring these things and then kind of helping set you free or helping you question. Well, I mean, it's helping set you free. I mean, it sounds a bit naff, but that's what it is. So it's the difference between a psychotherapist and a, uh, and a cult leader. A cult leader and a psychotherapist are exploring the same traumas, exploring the same vulnerabilities, but the cult leader is doing it to then attach you to him. Yeah. And the psychotherapist is doing it so that you can learn to think these things through and articulate them and um, be free. So, yeah. What I was trying to say when I said
0: that there's something dead about—I'm trying to think—is there some great novel that is also propaganda? Is there some great painting that is also propaganda? I'm sort of struggling to think of any great art that is also propaganda, and maybe uh, maybe I'm
1: kidding myself. Well, I mean, art is constantly being kidnapped for propagandistic purposes. I mean, you could say that. I think. I think it, it's, it's a, te- a lot of the time. It's been, it's, also, it's been commissioned as propaganda. Shakespeare was commissioned as propaganda all of the time. Um, you know, the great art of, you know, Eisenstein or the great early Soviet art was commissioned as propaganda. But it exists in, because it's art, it exists in this tension. It's almost half subverting the propaganda half the time. I was thinking about the sort of the historical ones. I mean, here's one about Henry V, for example, which is then you often use as propaganda. If you go and read Henry V, it's a devastating critique of Henry V. Yes so same as same as you know eisenstein's films are kind of you know most famously his film about Ivan the terrible which was meant to be praising stalin ends up being this incredible critique of stalin because he's an artist and artists just start digging stuff up so and often when artists go and work for propaganda as they did in the soviet union it all ends very unhappily with suicides uh, by mayakovsky or death from my so so and, but then we are into Reef and Shalt. So, look again, because they're similar. It's a very incestuous relationship. It's a dark and weird relationship. It's like um, the relationship of 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 you know Gandalf and the other the other wizard and you know. Saruman. Exactly. You know, yeah. Artists are constantly being pulled to the dark side, and then having nasty experiences when they do. But propagandists know that art, art is very close to what they do, and so they're always trying to seduce artists to go and work for them. And a lot of propagandists are bad artists. So whether it's Surkov, my guy in Russia, who writes these slightly naff postmodern novels, or it's Goebbels, who was a, you know, a naff novelist as well. So, so there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of overlap. You know, they're, not, they're both diametrically opposite and, and deeply related. So
0: I guess in your book, I mean, I, I found it slightly terrifying. And I remember reading John Ronson's book, You've Been Publicly Shamed. I don't know if you read that book, um, but it's about, about how people have been shamed on Twitter.
1: I haven't, no. I, I know his butterfly effects, but I don't know that one. It's terrific. And, and I thought after I'd read You've Been
0: Publicly Shamed, that would be it. People would now stop doing Twitter pylons because they would see how damaging they were, how they could be attacking people who didn't really deserve it. And I thought, you know, after people read this book, the world will change. And nothing changed, just things got worse and nobody paid any attention whatsoever. So I guess my my question is, is there any chance that
1: things will get better or are we just stuck? I think, I think, I think, I think. I mean, look, I mean, because I'm now also a slightly boring sort of, you know, academic policy wonk as well. I do see progress Um, in terms of regulation. I think we're going to move towards better regulation of, of social media i think it's a slow process because there's a lot of financial interests involved but i think we're getting there so I, i'm i think there is a change in that the more worrying thing is i don't know after the second world war we took the genie of really evil propaganda and even the soviets did that. they took the genie of real proper really bad propaganda and we and we and we wrapped it up in a we sealed we sealed it in a we sealed it in the in, 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 in the glass jar of gatekeepers. And now there's many awful, bad, non-pluralistic deficiencies in the old media system. But one, but it didn't let in too much Nazi propaganda or Nazi like propaganda. It was kind of sublimated in a lot of tabloids, and there was a lot of similarities between tabloids and, and fascist propaganda, but in a very diluted form. That seal has been broken. That seal has been broken. And the old evil has been, has been let out again and normalised. Mm. And I don't think you can fix that with regulation. Regulation will help kind of make, you know, it will help with a lot of things. You only, you only defeat that with competition. You compete with them. And I don't see anybody yet competing with them. The media system as it is, is either actually a handmaiden or part of the problem, if you're talking about Fox News, or if you talk about liberal news, because its incentive is to almost play into that game, but from the other side and play into this polarization. So, I mean, America is the biggest strategy where even the liberal channels are playing their own kind of cartoon politics. And that's really unhealthy. So we're gonna to have to learn to compete. And that means learning to understand audiences very well, to communicate with them very well. There's a role for public diplomacy. There's a role for, for social marketing, for PR, the good side of PR. And there's a huge role for, for public service media, but we have to start competing. Hmm. The old logic of we will just hold power to account by exposing it that's not what's going on power does not care if you expose it they don't care you can expose putin a million times he doesn't care you can expose trump nobody cared um you can even expose like you know bits of our own slightly flabby i mean i think britain's quite mild in these issues actually um we tend to over dramatize how bad things are here in terms of the evils of our society it's still like incredibly tolerant open sort of place but but even in Germany, there's nobody competing with the AFD. In Italy, there's no one really competing with the far right. So, so the genie's at the bottle. That which we agree that we will no longer do. And it's the old stuff. Radical dehumanization of the other, you know, stirring up murderous hatreds. We said we wouldn't do that. And now the genie's at the bottle. And um, you're going to have to compete. And in order to compete, you're going to have to... You're going to have people who are dedicated to doing that. And um, at the moment, those cadres and those institutions don't exist. Now, that that, that, that does worry me. At the moment, we're kind of just trusting that ISIS, the alt-right, Chinese-Russian propaganda are nothing as good as they think they are. Mm. And they make other mistakes, and they make institutional mistakes, and they subvert themselves by being stupid themselves. But I don't see anyone really competing with them. So that worries me. Hmm.
0: I'm sort of conscious that we said we would do an hour and we've run well over and I know that you've got other things to do tonight so Peter shall we just wrap it up there for tonight
1: I think so I think that's fine thank you I really enjoyed uh, thank you for letting me blabber on um are you going to cut this down you're not going to give the whole thing are you yes I'm going to do the whole thing all my shows seem to run
0: always I always say to people oh it'll be about 45 minutes and then it always seems to run to about an hour an hour 10 minutes and I take out the ums and the and. When I say something particularly stupid, I take
1: that out, but uh, everything else stays in. So, Okay, good. All right. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad we did this in the end. Yeah, and thank you so much for your time. No, it's, not. I mean, it's good for me as well. Um, I will promote it assiduously on, on uh, the evil social media platforms. Brilliant. Thank you so much. All right, man. Bye. Good night. Bye-bye. Well, that's the end of today's
0: show. I hope you enjoyed listening, and if you did, do please join me for the next episode. And if you have the time, please do recommend me to your friends. And a share on social media and maybe a review on iTunes really helps my guests get the audience they deserve. Goodbye for now.